this one was just one I wanted to show you. What is this, this one? This is The Common Mind by Andre oh. Gusterst Moore, I think is how you pronounce his name. Nothing is better than getting a book that already has like the pages <laughs> marked out, like read this, yeah. it's highlight. Let's see, let's see, just go. So, All right. So is that, uh, that is, it's a series of overviews of a, a, a number of different writers mm-hmm. that were basically trying to continue the, uh, the tradition of Christian humanism into the modern times, um, either because they were converted to it throughout their life with somebody like T.S. Eliot or somebody that was like Jonathan Swift, who was a defender of it, you know, his whole life. And, and um, it kind of gives you an overview um, of all of the, all of the places where there were people that fought back against the enlightenment um, sometimes successfully, sometimes less successfully, but the different, the different, places where the enlightenment changed the way we thought about something and by showing you somebody that was fighting against it at the time sometimes they lost sometimes they won did you just bring this book by so the common mind politics society and christian humanism from from thomas moore to russell kirk yeah so i I brought it just because i wanted to show it to you because we've talked about this oh this is crazy so you're like well hey i want to record something you come in the studio yeah so jason comes in the studio and you come to the studio, and I'm like, Jason, I can't remember what started it, but I was like, hey, man, I think I need to wrap my head around the enlightenment because everything that is going on, um, Jared was saying he's a, he's committed to the po- pre- Pre-enlightenment Presbyterianism. Yeah, and I was like, I heard that, and I'm like, cool, I don't know what that is, but all right, so, <laughs> sounds, I guess it's a good thing because you're a good guy, so I guess it's a good thing. But what is that? And so I was like, Jason, I got to wrap my head around the enlightenment because it seems like everything that we're dealing with now somehow is connected directly back to the enlightenment or some fruit of the enlightenment. But I don't really know how or why. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been calling it. I've been trying to come and come up with a name for it because nobody has really developed a nomenclature on what it exactly is. But I've been calling it pre. uh <clears throat> Excuse me. I've been calling it uh, Reformational Christian Humanism. Um, Wait, Reformation? I'm sorry. Re- Reformational Christian Humanism is is what I've been com- calling it, or okay. um, or, or uh, pre-Enlightenment Protestantism, uh, historic Protestantism. Sometimes, uh, but but people then even then don't quite know what you're talking about. Right. That's why I'm looking at you yeah. like this right now, because that's all before the Enlightenment. Right, yeah, because the because the Protestant Reformation is a pre Enlightenment phenomenon, right? It, historically speaking, it comes before the Enlightenment. So, and um, some people say, "Oh, the Enlightenment is the fruit of the Reformation," and mm-hmm. there's a sense in which it is, mm-hmm. but not in the way you tend to think about it. Protestantism was an attempt to retain the historic uh, Christian the historic uh, Christian position on a lot of different theological, philosophical, political topics. And uh, the high Roman Catholicism was moving away from the historic position on a lot of them. Uh, And the enlightenment, this is obviously, this is me as a Protestant describing it, but the enlightenment was the, uh, the attempt to hold on to those high medieval Roman Catholic worldview issues uh, and uh, double down on them in a way that the Reformation was um, opposing. So you have a a united Christendom through medieval in in Europe, through medieval Europe, uh, but then uh, the Reformation starts to break it up into a couple of different camps um, because uh, there are people calling for reform, saying that these high uh, that that some of the things that the Pope was doing and the Roman Catholic Church and the bishops were doing, archbishops uh, were involved in, weren't the historic Christian positions or weren't biblical or you know, were uh, moving away from the fathers, moving away from the the Christian understanding of things. So. Um, you know, Martin Luther says, "Hey, let's debate these topics." And and on 
uh, on All Hallows Eve, he puts up a, a call for debate. Here's the places where I think that the uh, we need to discuss what is actually the historic Christian position on these things. Mm. Um, when the Pope decides to send, instead of send somebody to debate, decides to send assassins, you have it <laughs> become <laughs> clear that there's a problem. That actually right? happened. The, yeah, pope that happened. Sends so the Pope sends assassins to so, a debate. So, right. Well, so instead of a debate. So the debate, oh. a debate's never really set up. Um, he wants a debate. He, uh, he, Martin it, Luther does. Mar- Martin Luther wants a debate, right? That's what he's asking for. He's he's not even necessarily asking for a reformation, really. He <laughs> wants a return um, to some uh, so on some of these positions, but some of them he's not even settled on himself yet. He just knows, okay, there's something we, we need to discuss this. What He's, he's reading the Fathers. He's reading um, Bernard of Clairvaux, a medieval theologian. Uh, he's reading these theologians, and he's saying, I think we've gotten off track, but I don't know exactly what it's going to look like for us to get back on track. Let's have some debates. And um, through a series of events, instead of debates happening, you end up with assassins sent, and the prince hides Martin Luther and rescues him, um, and and um, and you know you think something's gone wrong. The prince. So so okay. I had to stop eating. The so ger- the German the German prince. So I'm trying to figure this out. So you have the Catholic Church. Yeah, th- that institution's trying to assassinate Martin Luther. Yeah, who's trying to figure out how we get back to the basic biblical principles. So because we're drifting, and it's yeah. obvious we're drifting. Yeah. Martin Luther's like, hey, let's just have a debate so we can work through this, so we can com- have a conversation and get to the foundations. I'm not even trying to overthrow you necessarily. Right. I just want to get right. back to the foundations of this. The, the prince has to come in and get Martin Luther yeah, and hide him. And hide him, right, and protect him. Right. <laughs> and at the- so just the debate itself questioned the integrity of the Catholic Church. At right, that. Mm-hmm. right. Okay. And, okay. Um, and there's been – you know. Uh, a couple of hundred years where this uh, this understanding of the uh, of authority is being uh, rethought and and redeveloped into what eventually becomes you know the papal infallibility and but though, even those doctrines hadn't really been developed yet uh, but but it's a question of authority who gets to decide um, what. What's the nature of that authority? Right, that's that's uh, one of the questions that's coming up, and uh, what the Protestants end up what the Protestants end up arguing for is that the scriptures exist in the world as a public uh, authority as literature, right? That that they that the Bible exists as a public authority. That there isn't, um, and then the the Bible then establishes other authorities in the world. God establishes other authorities in the world, but He governs governs them all by the public authority of the Bible. Mm. Right? And the um, the Roman Catholics argue that the Bible is an authority, but uh, but the public authority is the Pope, and the Bible is a is a co authority, but the but the uh, Pope is the public authority. Okay, so pause real quick. All yeah. I'm hearing is theonomy versus autonomy and natural law, right? <laughs> that's because that's, that's all you ever hear. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. In that case, we're we're, we're right on page. <laughs> uh, no, but I'm serious though. There no, no, is yeah. a question of is God's word ultimately authoritative? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So and speaking to everything, speaking to everything, and that um, and uh, theonomy is a particular way of. Uh, Theonomy, as a general principle, um, is a is Protestantism. Mm-hmm. When it gets down to the application points, I think there's still a lot of there's still a lot that we need to work out. What does it actually we're just mean? Like, yeah. We're just like Martin Luther. Yeah, Let's work it out. Let's work just it don't out. Don't send assassins for yeah. us. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the but the uh, the Protestant, the, you know, the the Protestant, which is the the. That what actually where Protestants get their name, which is the the legal filing of a, uh, a a desire to have the authority issue settled. That um, that uh, really kicks off um, 
a divide that has now can have sort of sides. So you've got the, the, um, ref- because before that you had people that ended up Roman Catholics and people that ended up Protestants all asking for reform together, right? So you've got Martin Luther and, and, uh, Erasmus both wanting reform. And, um, mm. you, so you've got all these Christian humanists all wanting reform together. Thomas More wants reform, um, but he and Erasmus wants reform. They end up siding on the issue, on the legal issues on the Roman Catholic side, but they are Christian humanists. So if we, when, when, when we would read them, often you would read them and think, well, actually they're, they're actually closer to Protestants in terms of their ideology and a lot of their questions because they're, they're of their Christian humanism. But then, when it comes down to the matter of authority and how authority, the authority of the scriptures is exercised in the world, they end up on the Roman Catholic side, that the Bible can't exist as just a simple public authority, that it has that the public authority, as a simple, simple infallible public authority, that, the, that you have to have an infallible public authority that isn't just a book. Right, right so for, for me, I'm thinking... The government is abs- is is absolutely authority, right? Um, but they get their authority from what the Bible says that they get their authority from as a civil magistrate, right? And so they're arguing that no, no, by nature they are an authority, and they get to decide however it is they use that authority. Yeah. So you have uh, the debate comes down to, uh, and there's other debates. There's really important debates about worship, sacramental debates that are really metaphysical debates. Um, amongst the reformers and the Roman Catholics. and um, But the debate about authority is actually where it's all kicked off. And can you have an infallible public authority that is a work of literature, right, the scriptures, the Bible, um, can it exist as an infallible public authority and have other authorities that are real authorities but fallible um, authorities that are public and because they are established by the scriptures that are then um, – covenantally uh, dependent upon their definitions from the scriptures so that you can have um, you know, a king that is uh, that, that breaks the covenant and therefore loses his authority because he's not actually upholding the authority that he really has. He has tried to take a different authority than he has. Okay. So, um, which is which is what the you know the arguments that kick off the English Reformation, uh, the the what becomes the German Reformation. Germany hadn't really been founded yet. It, Germany was a series of of uh, different princes. So England had already been unified into a single nation, but Germany hadn't been yet. So you have a series of princes up in Germany that are trying to figure out. Um, who who is the authority that they have to listen to? Mm. Do they have to listen to the Pope because he is the public infallible authority when acting as the Pope, or do they have to listen to the Scriptures as the public infallible authority mm. um, only because the Scriptures are an authority? But are they the public authority? Are they the bro? This sounds like twenty twenty all over again, right? So what what ends up happening is the Protestants all say. The Bible is the only infallible public authority, but it exists as a public authority as a book. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, that's funny because that's almost uh, when you look at um, America, our, we do that with a constitution yep. instead of a king. It's the same, yeah. So we, the the and that understanding that you can that that un, that the that's the foundations of of you know constitutional law come from these debates about the relationship of the Bible to society. And so, okay, so keep going. I'm sorry. I'm just getting excited. Right. Go ahead. So you, and cause you go back to, um, you know, the, the foundations of common law when it's first being started. I, I almost brought my book about, uh, Alfred the great and Boethius, um, the comparing the translation. So Alfred the great, was a, a, one of the great kings of England. He is the one that really kicks off the common law tradition by establishing the book of Deuteronomy 
as the law of England. You can do that? You can, you can do that. So, wow. but, um, with the understanding that not only is Deuteronomy being established, mm-hmm. it's the system that Deuteronomy is, which is case law, is being established. So and you said law. I think about theonomy all the time. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Well, this is why when you're when when we talk, you're always like you're just talking theonomy. I'm like, well, I'm, this is actually this is just this is, yes. <laughs> I just put a title to it. It's okay, <laughs> maybe. But a lot of a lot of theonomists that I've talked to are actually revolutionaries, though, and not conservatives. I don't. So, I don't think. I don't think yeah. you're wrong about that. I just think that they <laughs> make us theonomists look bad. Anyway, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you have the establishment of the common law tradition begins with the establishment of the of God's law. And the system that exists in between Exodus and Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. so which is case law. So you have uh, the idea being that you're going to have a developing wisdom um, within the people, so mm. long as they are godly, right? Mm. That the people, as a people, can grow in wisdom so long as they're godly, and um, and that the, the that the common law system is one of the ways that you develop legal wisdom through the ages, because it's. Because case law is passed down and studied, uh, and and it is not an infallible authority because it can be overturned if you gain wisdom that you didn't have in previous right, generations. Right. But the wisdom of the generations is um, is moving in a particular direction so long as you re- retain remain godly as a people. So um, that eventually becomes. The constitutional law, which is developed uh, in the 1200s and then spreads throughout the world, um, and then uh, that comes into conflict with the Roman Catholic understanding of itself, uh, the, with the papal understanding of itself uh, in the the 1500s, so that you've got a uh, a developing. So you can take England as an example, right? Henry VIII, who often gets a bad rap for the wrong things. <laughs> so he, he marries his brother's widow. Um, and then, uh, realizes that he thinks that is probably wrong, right? That, um, because of the, some exegesis out of the old Testament, as well as some questions about that, the English are dealing with at the time. he, uh, so he asks for an annulment of his marriage from the Pope, and the Pope says no. I've heard the story before. Yeah. So the um, and you, you will sometimes hear people say, "Well, and then the reformers saw an opportunity, and so they said, we'll grant you uh, a divorce.'" Um, and the but actually, it becomes this really crazy um, legal debate because your king. Uh, your king's marriage is not just a an issue that is only for it's, uh, it's not a private issue, yeah. Right, because the you're uh, setting a precedent. You're set is you're setting a precedent for the whole people. You're also deciding who is going to be the legal next ruler, who's going to inherit the throne. Right. Yeah, and what's the what's the equity of this particular standard of this law that we're going to make this decision off of? Right, because it um, and and Henry understands that he's an he's a he's an incredibly intelligent um charismatic guy and so he understands all this and so he brings in all of the great legal experts and thomas cranmer who is one of the great legal experts um who also is uh, a he i think i believe they were called lutherans at the time but he's it's not lutheran the way we think of lutheran yeah, a, yeah. a follower of the reformation he gives the best legal argument for the annulment based on the fact that within the common law tradition, you actually can't marry your brothers. You're, it's, it's actually it's, in the Westminster it, Confession. It's it, never, it, it was, right. Yeah, it never was in play. Yeah, that, that you aren't actually allowed to marry your, uh, the widow of your siblings uh, in, in English common law. And whether or not that's a good law or not, it was the, was it was the, the law. law of the land. Um, and he says, so it doesn't really matter what the Pope says. Because the Pope doesn't have <laughs> jurisdiction <laughs> over English law. Yeah, sphere sovereignty right there. That yeah. was the revolutionary thing in the Pope's mind. Well, of course I do. They'd been claiming um, to have they, – they had been claiming superiority over the laws of all of the uh, Christendom since 
uh, the 1300s when uh, the it, and a lot of this goes back to Holy Roman Empire law and canon law, right? That they they had begun making a claim. Um, so the, the Holy Roman Emperor was said to be the seat of Paul, and the the uh, Bishop of Rome was said to be the seat of Peter, and Paul rebuked Peter uh, to his face, and so sometimes the emperor was expected to correct. They they were expected to correct one another. There was a checks and checks balance. And balance yeah, for, yeah. And what ends up happening is the pope uh, he, uh, crowns. He ends up crowning the Holy Roman Empire and starts signing all of his official documents from the seat of Peter and Paul. Mm. Right? He claims to hold both authorities because he's the one that crowned the emperor. I was a um, he, Christmas Day, the the emperor's crowned, and and so, so you have this a really a revolution from this 14th century pope that says actually I there is no authority that can check me. That works its way out over the course of the next 150 100, well 100 years. So okay, hit pause, don't forget, let's take a drink. Um would that be like Samuel anointing David and then acting like king? <laughs> yep. Okay. Yep. Just so yep. I understand that. So right. Samuel says, "Well, hey, I'm the one that anointed you, so I have authority over you. So they have some sense of how these spheres operate between the, the, the church and the state. And once there's some sort of check and balance and two governments that are actually supposed yeah. to be operating. So they have that. that, that are supposed to um, be in checks and balances against one another. And then, you know, if you're, if you're someplace like in, in England and, or amongst the, the colonies of, of Great Britain, not the colonies amongst the different nations within Great Britain, you also have, uh, still acting um, tribal authorities as well, right? So family authorities. Mm, that those are a government themselves. That were a government yeah. unto themselves. So the, the, you have all of these different uh, authorities that are supposed to be checking and balancing one another. And when they are working well, it's a, it's a benefit to all the people and the people have a lot of freedom. So um, that's really what the questions surrounding William Wallace um, were is you have these tribal peoples and these tribal authorities um, that are coming into conflict with Edward uh, Longshanks, um, who's saying, I, as king, I actually have authority in uh, in amongst these things that used to be your family authority, your tribe's authority. I'm going to take them all and take them away. And so you have kings that. You know, um, same thing happens in Wales, right? They they banish yeah. the Welsh language, they banish the Celtic language. They they're terrible to the Irish. Um, some some of the different kings are, and uh, and but it's a but it's as much a legal issue as it is just a moral issue because mm-hmm. you have these tribal authorities that are that have been existing there. Well, um, back to back to Henry VIII. Uh, Henry VIII gets legal permission. Uh, that his to marry that his first marriage was not legal it's annulled right so it it's as it's legally as if it never was and he um and he remarries and and uh the pope objects to his remarriage and so they basically reorganize the english the authority of the english church and put the king over the church right now that's a swing in a different direction. They went too far. Um, but if you look at it in context, it's actually, it's understandable. Um, if you have, so because something similar ha- is, you know, in German, in Germany happens where, uh, and in a lot of ways, this is where nationalism begins because the church begins attacking the people um, and attacking, especially those people that are trying to preach the gospel. And we're talking about, this is enlightenment. This is before the enlightenment. The before enlightenment. Right. Okay. This is the this is the this the is lead up to enlightenment. Lead up to it. So you're what, not going to be able to do this in 30 minutes. <laughs> no, probably not. But what you what you end up having is this amazing moment where the state steps in and said and and really enacts what Paul does with Peter and rebukes 
uh, rebukes Rome to its face, the, and, the Roman bishop. The, and the reason the this is important face. is because you, you literally have the church functioning outside of the sphere in which it's supposed to be operating, taking to itself the sword of yep. iron, right? Right. That it has over life and death, and then actually um, applying it to the people like they're the civil magistrate. It's like, you don't get to do our job. Right. right? That's not, and you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're doing it wrong. You don't get to do that. So I see how they swing the pendulum so far the other way, but it's still a problem because what they do unintentionally is it eliminate ultimately any authority the church has whatsoever. They they decapitate right. it, and they they do it sort of accidentally because mm. the what. So while Martin Luther is in hiding, so there's so you've got Christian humanism growing, and one of the things that happens right at the same time is uh, is the, uh Istanbul or Constantinople is defeated by the Muslims it, um, mm. and is renamed Istanbul. The uh, the Orthodox priests in Constantinople, they the Muslims are infamous for burning libraries. So they they take the libraries and they divide it up into the saddlebags of all the priests, mm. and the priests all just leave different directions on horses. Yeah. They go and and a lot of them end up in in Europe. One of them stays in Martin Luther's house and as a thank you gift gives him a Greek New Testament. Right? And Martin Luther then goes into hiding because they're trying to kill him and he brings his Greek New Testament with him and he translates the first Bible into German from this wow, this text. Another one ends up staying in Geneva. And Codex Beza, which was uh, the uh, Be- uh, Theodore Beza was the linguist of the time in Geneva. He would taught taught linguistics and translation, Greek and Hebrew and Latin and everything. He was a he had the gift of tongues. He he is also given a Greek New Testament from one of these priests on the run from Constantinople. Some of them end up in Italy. Um, and and so you you begin the, one of the reasons you can start getting translations into the original languages is because all of a sudden you've actually got Greek New Testaments for the first time. Mm. They'd all been over in Constantinople. Nobody spoke Greek in England, in Europe. And so we, they didn't really hold on to them much in the same sort of way that they did where they still spoke Greek. And so you've got this flood of manuscripts, uh, Greek and Hebrew, the Greek fathers that weren't available, uh, suddenly are available and they begin and the Christian humanist movement is set up because they've been they're hungry they're for hungry this. for it right they the uh, so you get the um the you begin getting an influx of of theology uh, from the fathers that they hadn't that they didn't have access to they'd only had quotes from other fathers and then you also begin getting actual Greek New Testaments getting put into print. People start learning Greek like mad. Wow. Uh, people start learning Hebrew because you also, you also begin getting Hebrew Old Testaments. And so you get this um, burst of learning right at the same time um, that's translation, that, that you're getting a new Latin translation of the Bible. You get English translations of the Bible during this time. You get the first German translation. So this is all happening all at the same time. And um, when... The government, the civil government, steps in to protect the church from other members of the church. Uh, you know, the German Christians are being protected from Italian Christians um, that are attacking them, <laughs> and so the German Christians. It makes sense that they would start saying, "Well, I identify with my Germanness as much as my Christianity," right? mm. because my uh, with my civil prince as much as with my pastor because my civil prince just saved me from the Pope. Right. So you start getting, um, and the, the, something similar is going on in England, right? The Pope, uh, is, is trying to, <coughs> is trying to win back through civil means through, uh, coercive means through force. You know, um, this is all before the counter reformation because the counter reformation actually corrects some of the errors okay. uh, within the Roman Catholic church as well. But at this time, so you get this sudden influx of princes that get convicted by the, the scriptures, which are now being treated as a public authority. And so they step in and protect the church. And then 
the the church is happy to hand over authority mm. to the ones that are protecting them. Right. Right. So it wasn't just like a yeah. It wasn't a power grab at that point. And so that's that's what it's so why it's so difficult sometimes um, to understand some of this because we don't have we don't have experience of the government of a government that is not in the midst of a power grab, right? Because <laughs> right. that, that, that comes later. <laughs> okay. So, so this is leading up to this the is leading up to. So then, what happens is you know, you have the Counter Reformation, um, and the, uh, within the Roman Catholic Church, and they stop. Uh, trying to assassinate people, they, you know, they they realize that the um, you have popes come along that say, "Hey, you know what? We actually don't even need assassins on payroll <laughs> because we're not a civic authority." Right? Oh so, wow! Okay. So they so that understanding. So I mean, you, you still have a civic authority in Vatican City, and sure. uh, but but they aren't an international civic authority anymore. Um, it begins to go away. The the Holy Roman Empire as well begins to go away. So imperial authorities all are dissolved when the scriptures are treated as a public authority. Mm. Um, so they lost that. So one. so they so they lost that one. But the assumptions or the the philosophical aspects that made high Roman Catholicism makes sense. Um, the metaphysical assumptions as well as the assumptions about authority. And then the, the assumptions, um, those, those become the enlightenment, mm. right? Those, uh, uh, assumptions, uh, begin to work their way out through, uh, through different thinkers that, um, and it is the things that the reformation had, um, tried to remove from high medieval Christianity in order to return to a more historic faith. Right? And, and what are some of those assumptions? So, um, so uh, the the fact that the uh, you know that the Bible, the reason it's an authority is because it okay back to authority. It, it comes, it matches the standard right. of authority. Right. It's not the standard itself, but the Bible matches it. Right. Okay. So so this is again, this is all for me. So understanding this, while it seems like the Reformation in that sense has is winning or has won or has done a great thing. What comes is there's still this seed inside of Catholicism that is questioning maybe or or is the foundation of is it though? Yeah, so you well is it this still a the the authority or Yeah, so you have um so you've got uh you know uh philosophical thinkers that that run off in Sort of the uh, so, if you're going to just summarize the Enlightenment, um, the Enlightenment is an attempt to have, or is a belief that you can have power over the nature of things, mm. rather than mm. um, think the uh, you know the anti-Enlightenment uh, would say, well, no, our job is to submit to the na- submit things to their nature mm-hmm. and bring them to mm-hmm. their their intended end, Mm -hmm. right? That the, that everything has a nature and it's supposed to be used a certain way. And our job is to discover what the nature is and then use it that way and bring it to its intended end. That's what maturity looks like. That's the foundations of everything we talked about with metaphysics. 100%. Yeah. Mm. So, um, but the enlightenment said, well, actually you can have power over the nature of things. Our job is to gain power over the nature of things, whether it's power over our own nature or power over the nature of, Oh my goodness! Or, you could be like God. Yeah, exactly. So, so you have um, the Enlightenment project is is a question of gaining power over nature, gaining power over the nature of of things in general, uh, whether it's through words, through technology, through words, through technology, through philosophical uh, inquiry. So then, so when you talk about the Enlightenment. We're not just post enlightenment. We're actually in it still, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're we're right. I mean, we're probably peak enlightenment right now. Uh, and so, if, if if you know if if I if I've got the you know a person sitting across from me, and um, the the Christian reformational 
you know, um, historic Christian, whatever you want to call it, the, the pre-enlightenment Christian question is, what kind of, of creature am I dealing with? Well, a creature made in the image of God. What is a creature made in the image of God for? Well, they are for worship. So how is it that I help this um, creature, this person, achieve the end for which they were created, right? Because then their nature will find satisfaction in, uh, in its own, it will uh-huh. find fulfillment in its own satisfaction. Guess it's what it's designed yeah. to do. It's what it's designed to do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so this is where debates about natural law get, get funky because they used to call that natural law, right? You're finding what the nature of a thing is, and then what what are the laws by which the nature of that thing ought to be used, and then trying to use that thing according to its nature. If that's the definition of natural law, I'm a nat- I'm in. Right. Oh, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. But then there's um, a, there have been there have been people that have tried to reclaim that use of natural law post enlightenment, post enlightenment, make it something else, or even during the enlightenment. Oh, okay. Um, this is where. Uh, the the book I mentioned, the Heavenly City of the 18th Century Philosophers, is really useful because they that book he tracks the the change of the use of the words like of words like nature, right? Mm. The, um, of law, natural law, the, the the nature's laws, those sorts of things. Those words the the um, have all been shifted through the enlightenment to mean something different than what they used to mean. And so you've got somebody, somebody that says, Oh, Thomas Aquinas was a natural law theologian. So, well, which use of natural law? That's the question. <laughs> what natural right? law are which you referring law? to? And sometimes because, because some of these things didn't become hyper clear until the reformation, it was a mix, right? You'd find guys that were trying to, they're, they're still mm-hmm. trying to find out they're in the midst of discussing in order to get to the definitions um, cause like, uh, Vody, uh, says this is all, it's all an argument over the, the dictionary, yeah, right? Yeah, it's an argument yeah. over definitions. So you've got this, um, this move in the enlightenment to begin saying, well, discovering the nature of a thing, um, is so that we can control it and change it. Right. So, um, this, and it makes sense, uh, that because this was that was a, a high medieval understanding of of I mean it's basically con, uh, transubstantiation but for everything mm. right transubstantiation uh, in the high medieval sense was that uh, the priest because of the authority that was granted to him by the highest authority in the world the pope through the archbishop, through the bishop, down to the priest. He was given authority by the highest civic authority in the country, in the world to be able to change the nature of bread and wine mm. into something that gave people power. Mm. Right? That understanding uh, of what authority is for and how it should be used and that it can, that when you've got a high enough authority, you can actually change the nature of things. You no longer are submitting to, you're changing the nature of things. That view becomes the enlightenment view so that you be uh, all the way to, to where Hegel you know, will say something um, like uh, the state is the, uh, the state is the, uh, is the ultimate ideas of reality uh, enforcing themselves through the authority of the state, right? So he, he was in favor of state worship because the government should be given enough power to, that it can actually change the nature of things because the nature of things are fluid because there's the, the oh ideal um, is yet to be reached, but it's the goal of the state, the power, the civic coercive state, it's that their goal to to actually transform everything until it reaches its ideal nature, right? It's because it doesn't have a solid nature. So, I'm I'm sitting here listening to you, and I'm holding my head because I'm thinking everybody's around here yelling Marxist, you know? Yeah. 
and all other sorts of things like Foucault, ah, you know, yeah. they're pulling their hair out and it's like enlightenment. <laughs> so then, yeah. so then this is because, after, so it would be fair to say that after the enlightenment is why we start getting things ultimately like evolution. Why we start getting, I mean, if you start messing with the nature of things, you have to figure out. Yep. Yes, what other false god you got to put in there to make it work? When you start removing the nature of things, that yeah. things no longer yeah. have yeah, a, yeah, nature, yeah. a nature that is is given to them by God in their creation. When that when that starts happening, then the question is: Well, who decides what is what? At the the Enlightenment, um, you know, many people would say it begins with "I think, therefore I am." Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that I become uh, a. a and it, it does, in, in many ways, it begins there. I think, therefore, I am. Um, but it becomes, I declare what I am now to become. You know, I, I become what I declare I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, that, that because the central authority structure, you know, as the Enlightenment is... I mean, in the high medieval age, when this when these ideas are around, the sen- the highest authority in the world is the pope, and then it becomes the state, the king, right? Uh, um, as the as everything breaks apart, and the pope willingly lets go of of some of the things that he shouldn't have taken on be- because of the Counter Reformation, the 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 kings step in and say, "I now am that highest authority," but then. That does, is dissolved uh, as well. Um, so, you, so you have you know, the Declaration of the Divine Right of Kings, and you've got these sorts of things that that go on during that time, because they're trying to figure out who, where is the Who's solid authority, right? <laughs> um, uh, and the this is a covenantal problem. It is a covenantal problem. Well, it's the solution is all covenantal. So, because but even so, they're still figuring out. They're they're looking at who. Where's the transcendent? Right. Who's transcendent? Who, the, who the, is transcendent? Yes. yes. So, um, so Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian, yeah, but Queen Elizabeth is, I think, one of the greatest leaders ever, and she hated the Presbyterians. Um, you read her speeches. You know, she's very she's very devout and pious and a wonderful leader, but she rightly saw that if you get rid of the bishops, if the authority structure of the church shifts and changes, that it's going to have implications for the civil magistrate. If there's no bishops, you'll have no kings. You know who figured that out too? Joe Biden in 2020. (laughs) Too soon. (laughs) I mean, when you look at it, I mean, ultimately, that is exactly what we just got done facing. In the pandemic. I mean, it's just, it feels so fresh. It's almost like different faces, same story. Same story over and over, right? So you have this. But what's worse about this, and I'll let you go, I'm sorry. No, what's no. worse about this is we have no concept. Yeah, we don't, we don't have any idea what's going on, right? So we've, because uh, <sighs> it's not, this is, because for us, it's because we are so informed by the Enlightenment and we're so formed by the Enlightenment, we think this is all a problem in the civic government. The, right. civ- the civic government is the uh, thermometer. So explain that. So you're right. That's exactly what we think it is. Explain right. how we think that, though. We we think the, that we the, you know we we've got a fever and we think, man, I've got to get a new thermometer. <laughs> I've got, you know, so we shake it and we're like, what? We got to fix this thermometer. If I can get the numbers down, if I stick it in ice or something, you know that that my fever has gone away. The civil government, and this is what Queen Elizabeth understood. If we change, if we shift and change things in the church going to have a result in the civic uh, realm and so she opposed presbyterianism because it was her job to defend the throne um, she believed that she would that god had given her the job of defending the throne and so she opposed presbyterianism now the, some of the presbyterians also made some terrible moves at the time um what never <laughs> uh it, but you um and but they believed that Presbyterianism had a deeper legal claim to the organization of the British church, of the church mm. uh, of the British Isles. Uh, and I think that they were right legally, and then they made some bad moves to try and implement it. 
some, some Ill, they made illegal moves to try and accomplish a legal end, which is wrong. And so we've seen that. Yeah, you've seen that. So Queen, uh, uh, but Queen Elizabeth understood that actually, if you change the church, you end up changing the civil magistrate eventually. All right. That and what mm. um, the what ended up happening was the move towards democratization um, that happened as the church, as the Reformation Church embraced Enlightenment principles, the Reformation Church was democratized and became What do you mean by democratized? More, more uh, of a, where they, they started to believe that the rule of the, uh, the rule of the magistrate was at the will of the people. Uh, right? that I know the, what you're saying. That, the, that Demos is the one who decides who rules itself. The, the the people decide who rules. No them. federal representation, right? So like, yeah, yeah. So okay. um, and you, so you begin getting a, a lot of moves within the broader evangelical historic Reformed churches towards that democratization. That um, and uh, and they begin believing that salvation by faith alone means that I I decide my devotion mm. and that defines who I am. That gives me a new nature that I can decide to have a new nature. Right. Yeah. Pelagianism almost. Yeah. It, it, it becomes a Pelagianism. It starts out um, as an Arminianism, even though I don't know if Arminius himself believed in Arminianism, right, right, right. but you have this um, move within a few generations of the enlightenment spreads and the assumptions about the nature of the world, the nature of our relationship to our neighbor, the nature of our relationship to God, it's decovenantalized because the Enlightenment is um, is an individualistic. It's it's it it is not a it's not a covenant. That's interesting. So become so then you have this thing as of uh, you have these spheres. You have like you were talking earlier. You have this government of the family. Right. Yeah. You have this government of the church. You have this government of the state, all real operating governments. Right. And then now it, you get to this place where individualism becomes the thing. It's the individual in the state. Right. Right. <laughs> right? That's all that matters. That's, no, all that, that's all that there is, is the individual in the state uh, in enlightenment thinking. You know, it, there <sighs> is. And, and then know, it's a then it's a debate between which is more which is powerful enough to change the nature and so you've got the individualists uh-huh uh-huh uh, that are saying no come my, on in. my i individually am the one that is powerful enough to change my nature and then other people would say no 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 it's the state that is powerful enough to change the nature of humanity and so you've got the well, yeah. and and there's a the other part so of that. So you're choosing between Trinitarian heresies, <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the only options you think exist. Right, right. And so you're begging one of those two people, which is really interesting because okay, so I've always looked at this and said, okay, you, you see what's happening in the community and culture, and you're like, where's mom and dad at? <laughs> right. Somebody yeah. bring me a stick and let's beat some parents into <laughs> understand they're responsible for these kids. Hold right? on a second, are you guys already recording? We are already recording. <laughs> you guys Just are the worst, but yeah. I'm arriving <laughs> early. You know, know what? But we, you just missed it too. We just we were this, talking about the enlightenment. This is this was supposed to be a, a, a just a quick explanation of the enlightenment. That's so what it was. That we would finish before you got here. Ah, okay. And and now that you're here, and now you're only an hour into it, you still have yeah, yeah fifty one okay. minutes, fifty one uh, minutes. And we just now got to the Enlightenment. So <laughs> so I'm doing two episodes, which means, what, three, four hours? Yeah. No, here's what's crazy. This episode is actually over. Yeah. When you got here. Goodbye, everybody. Yes. I've been yes. Joffrey. That's, that's what we're actually going to talk about yeah. now, though. I, 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 this goes right into our conversation still, I think. It, it really does, yeah. But Should we... Wrap it up and then start a new one. I think we should, should we wrap. Just... I think we should wrap it up. Okay. And start a new one. But I, I don't want to forget. All, I, as you were saying, we have such a massive fallout from the. We're, I think. Oh, the lightning is over. We're done. It's we're. Yeah. We're still in it in one sense. So we don't even know where this thing ends at yet. Yeah. Really. Anytime anybody says, "I am who I choose to be," or 
I get to pick my yes, they my them, identity. Anything. They them cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I'll let my kids wait to be baptized. Okay, so I think we all see that in some sense secular. And you, Jeff, you can jump in here. We're just going to shut it down. But uh, we see all that. You got notes. Jason brings books. You bring notes. Yeah, these aren't notes. Just saying Jason's going to be interested to see. That's all. Oh, okay. okay. All right. But, you um, know, for the next episode. For the next episode. Um, we see that, I think, as it relates like to poetry. the That's LGBTQ movement. We see that it relates to um, the Alphabet Mafia. We see yeah. that in all leftism. Like, they are embracing that fully. Like, postmodernism embraces all yeah. that. Yeah. What we don't see it in is in ourselves. In ourselves. So, yeah. how, how do we – I just want to wrap up with how we see in post – enlightenment inside of christendom necessarily in ourselves yeah i mean it's we as soon as we think that our job is to find the ideal and begin imposing it rather than uh seeing god work his sanctification by the spirit through us, in us, through us, in our families, in our governments, in our in our states, in our cultures, um, we are thinking in terms of the Enlightenment. We're thinking we've got to uh, we've got to to. We, that's not the kind of creature we are. We are historic historical beings. Our job is to live within history and be uh, and, and walk with the spirit, mm. and that's that's. That is what actually moves us towards uh, the the end for which God has created us, right? Is to say, how do I walk with the Spirit right now within history? Not how do I? What is the ideal, and how do I impose it? Um, the so, which is so opposed to the way we just think normally. Yeah, that uh, it's almost. It well, almost feels like an impossible task. And, you know, and I, I just want to add in one there, one thing too is the idea that we do not see, at least from what you're telling me, the idea that we do not see the word of God as absolutely the final authority on the situation. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just talking to Toby about this, and he said something about church conferences, and I think this speaks right to enlightenment stuff. Church conferences will have all sorts of spiritual theological solid biblical teachings on everything right and they have no concept whatsoever and you'll go to all the church conferences and they'll oh, the church is this is the um uh the pillar on earth like they, they just will throw on the importance of the church the government of the church but then they have nothing of the church that speaks to the civil magistrate or if it has anything to say about the civil magistrate's job and what it's supposed to do at all does not speak to that yeah. ultimately except for Romans 13 which is to obey your civil magistrate period yeah but the question the, right? the, the <laughs> so, question of who the civil magistrate even is is not even something that we know how to discuss right so in America is the civil magistrate Joe Biden right right is it the constitution is it my mayor what is it where we don't need, I don't think we even be, but it but be our civil magistrate is a historic question in a Christian understanding, right? It's a question of rightful authority that is answered in with historical arguments. Yeah, and and my point is and we don't know how to have those. That's right. Yeah. We, and nor do we know how, who or how to attribute that authority yeah. to. Which is why books like this one, the um, the Common Mind, are so helpful. Uh, the the one that you mentioned at the beginning because it actually gives us the vocabulary for having the discussions we don't know we're not having. Mm, that's so good. Okay. All right. 